Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! That's what Santa says. What? You need to eat all those latkes? That's what Hanukkah Harry says. Hanukkah Harry. Yes, it's December, and the holiday season is upon us. Oh, what do you want for Hanukkah, Rob? Well, Kevin, I want more folks to contribute to our Patreon. What do you want for Christmas, buddy? I was going to say the Angel Cast recording, but um, I guess I'll say the exact same thing, Rob. How dare you? You'll never get it. Maybe someone out there will get us that gift. How would they do that, Kevin? Well, our generous holiday elves should head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And then search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And then you can set up a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us out. Your contributions help Help us continue doing what we are doing. We are self-funded, so we need your help. Have another PBS tote bag. And for Hanukkah, feel free to contribute eight times a month. Okay, Rob, now you're pushing it. That's, okay, you're right. I get right. it. I see what you did there. Okay. Have a safe, healthy, and happy holidays, and head over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and leave a nice little gift for your two Broadway-loving elves. <laughs> you liked that lie, didn't I you? I did, actually. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Broadway World, The Stage Network, and the Broadway Podcast Network. We're almost up to 450 episodes, so there's a lot to go through. Well, not only is it the end of the year, it's also the end of the decade. That is right. Last week, we took a look back on the musicals of the 2010s, and today we are examining the plays of the decade. And offering his incredible knowledge and sharp sense of humor is one of New York's most beloved critics, Time Out's very own Adam Feldman. Adam, how are you today? I am great. I'm honored to be on here. It's nice that you think of me when uh, when it comes to the end of things. <laughs> Adam is, Adam is our con- <laughs> the patron saint of conclusion, Adam Feldman. <laughs> so, Adam, so, you know, everyone has admired your, your work for such a long time. When did you first become interested in theater? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think like most people, it was when I was a kid. I think most people... I, well, I think... Uh, you know, I, I I saw plays when I was a kid in summer camp and in local community theater productions, and I was obsessed with watching what was happening on stage. Uh, and there was something about it that was so magical for me, even you know, as a kid. And I wanted to do theater, and I did theater in summer camp and in, in high school, and, and uh, I, I bought a lot of cast albums, and I got yes, this, yes, you know. Uh, 
and I, I, I've said this before, but I was kind of a weird kid. Well, big surprise. But uh, I was. Uh, but in in my particular way, this manifested uh, as a, a kind of an obsessionality, and um, and specifically with regard to this musical theater, I collected a lot of cast albums, and I was very interested in finding out what other people thought about them, and. I didn't have that many other kids to talk about this with in my little high school. So I went to the public library and I would research reviews of these shows. Oh. I would find, yeah, I would like, I would go to the microfiche in the New York times and I would look up what Frank Rich said about, you know, whatever show in, in, yeah. in 1985. And, uh, and this was uh, a way to tap into a larger conversation for me. And in retrospect, although I never thought I would become a critic in retrospect, that did, set the groundwork a little bit for me. Um, it's always something that I've valued in others. I've always uh, valued the existence of criticism. I like reading what other people have to say about things. I think it it spurs my own ideas and it sharpens my own responses. And uh, I'm very pleased and proud to be able to participate in that conversation now. That's really fantastic. And did you have any desire at any point to actually you know, be on the other side and to be a performing artist or to be you know, be behind the scenes in like a director or producer capacity? Well, sure. I mean, I loved performing. Yeah. I still love performing. And I've, I've recently, in the past 10 years, I started performing myself a lot more. Yes, um, which is fantastic. Which is really, yeah, well, really fantastic. Well, I don't know if everyone would think so, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I certainly <laughs> love doing it. Uh, and I, I hope other people enjoy it when the, when it's on. Um, I've been singing a lot, basically, yeah. uh, again. And that's a, that's another conversation which I'd be delighted to have another time. It's a longer conversation. But I stopped singing for a long time. Uh, I started singing again recently. Um, I love it. I do it every week at a place called Club Coming on Monday mm -hmm. nights and uh, many other places that have been kind enough to host me. Uh, but I, So, I, yes, I, I, love, I love performing. Um, for various reasons, it was not what I chose to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of that was practical because, uh, among other things, I, I was born in Canada and I moved here on certain visas, and so there were practical issues involved. Yeah. But also, uh, I think if I had really wanted to do it, I would have overcome those questions, or I would have moved back to Canada and started, right. you know, have done oh, something right. else. Of course, it wasn't. It wasn't what I. I, I realized. I recognized in myself a ceiling of uh, how far I was going to go as a performer because I think I, I can be a very good performer. I don't think I can, I'm a, I'm a limitlessly talented actor. Ah. I think there are limits to how well I can inhabit another person. It doesn't uh, stop I, a lot I, of I can, people, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. But so, yeah. uh, but I, 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 I love performing uh, and, uh, and I do it as often as I can, but, but, but I started uh, writing sort of, I got in it through a back channel. Oh, tell us about that. Well, I was when I moved to New York in the in the late '90s. I was I had a job and I uh, had a day job, and I had some time. That my job didn't always fill all of my day, and so I spent a lot of time on this internet discussion group, uh, sort of an online chat group about theater. Several of them, but especially one that was about musical theater, mm -hmm. and I would uh, get into heated <laughs> arguments. Uh, <laughs> with other uh, enthusiasts. And um, at one point, someone was starting up the magazine Show Business Weekly again. Oh, yes. Uh, we love and, 
Yeah, and and someone wrote to me and said, "Hey, listen, we this is uh, out of the blue, but we like what you've been writing online, and we were wondering if you would like to review for us." And so I was uh, said, "Of course, certainly, of course I would." And so I I started doing that, and uh, then thing led to thing. I I, I met Paul Wontorek, the uh, editor of Broadway.com, at a party, and we were talking, and I mentioned that I was doing these things, and he said I should send him some stuff, and I did, and he liked it, and. So I started writing reviews for Broadway.com. This is back when they still had reviews. Yeah. And I quit my job, and I really sort of uh, decided to throw myself into into this strange life. Uh, and uh, luckily, a job opened up a timeout in 2003, and uh, by then I had some clips from Broadway.com and Show Business Weekly, uh, and, and they liked me and they hired me. And, and so here I am, 16 years later. I love still, it. Still... They'll let time out in New York, which Fantastic. I love. Fantastic, yeah. And, and, we, and I, I will say, and I'm sure I'm speaking for Kevin as well, you know, anytime yep. a new show comes out, the first person we go to check out to see what they thought about it is always you. Always. Um, seriously. Always. Your, your, yep. your writing is so fantastic, and you, and you capture so much of what the, the essence of what the piece is trying to do. So we can't tell you how much we appreciate all that you do. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think criticism has changed in the past decade from 2010 to where we are now, which is 2019? Oh, boy, it's changed a lot. Um and uh, I guess the first major way in which it's changed is that there's a lot less of it mm. because there have been major changes or less of it in a formal way. And let me be clear about that. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, there have been enormous changes in the way that the media culture is structured. And there was a time, you know, I'm the president of the New York Drama Critics Circle. And when the New York Drama Critics Circle was founded, there were uh, 10 daily papers in yeah. New York City, and all of them had a devoted theater critic, and that was in addition to magazines, national and otherwise, that also had theater critics. Uh, that landscape has changed dramatically, and so there, are, uh, these old companies have either died or have been forced to make uh, a lot of very important reductions in the coverage that they make, and. Certainly, when these companies are making decisions about what they can keep and what they can't, when they're making these triage decisions, arts coverage and arts editorial coverage is not a priority. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen is the disappearance, generally, of arts coverage and criticism in what remains of these sort of mainstream legacy publications. Um, and those things are not, by and large, being replaced in professional ways uh, in other publications. Now, what you do have to, in the uh, meanwhile uh, is this parallel rise of a kind of a crowdsourced criticism, uh, a Yelp-type criticism, yes. where you have uh, people sharing, you know, just anyone, everyone from the audience sharing their opinions. Right. And, and you can find those in places like showscore.com and places like mm-hmm. that. Um, and uh, certainly in the internet chat rooms, which uh, are slightly diminished from where they were at their height a few years ago, but nonetheless still exist. Uh, and generally on social media, people just share what they've seen and what they like, and other people share it, and there are influencers. It's a different, but uh, as a professional class, there are fewer critics and they have fewer platforms. Um, and that, yeah, that's been a big change. I was going to ask you, what do you think makes an effective critic? Well, gosh, uh, I, I, I hate to sound basic, but uh, I think it, it it's really just about being as smart as you can and writing as well as you can. Uh, you know, it, 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 it comes down to that for me. I mean, and, 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 and a baseline knowledge and passion for, for the 
the art form that you're covering. Right. I think if you don't love what you're doing, it's going to show, and uh, and it's also going to it's going to limit you in how open you can be to the best stuff that you're seeing because the best stuff that you're seeing will sometimes be a little bit more challenging at first pass mm-hmm. uh, and some and, and an openness to that a, a knowledge that that will be true uh, is very helpful mm-hmm. and, and 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 you can get some one thing that's great about professional critics is that we see so much i mean this is a double-edged sword because i see too much i see way more than anyone any normal civilian will see no one is going to see hundreds of shows a year i'm doing that because uh it's my job and also because these tickets are provided to me for free i would never be able to see this much theater if i were paying for it absolutely uh, I, and most people don't have the time and resources to do it that's one reason i see all this stuff is because i uh, i do want to help direct people toward what I think is the best use of their time and money. And that's on a basic level what my job is. I I am a reviewer. I try to, I mean, I'm a first-pass reviewer. I'm writing about shows a few days after I've seen them. I'm writing about them in quite short form. Uh, And I'm writing what I know sometimes will be a first draft of the historical opinion of these shows, in as much as such an opinion will exist. Uh, sometimes I'll look back on shows that I loved at the time, and I will barely remember them. And there, I will look back on shows that I was sort of confused about or uh, mixed about, and I will find that they have stuck with me in very real mm. and indelible ways. So I know that, and I, I hope everyone factors this in, I know that I and others in my position will not always be getting it 100% right. Mm. Um, even for what and I'm, and I'm not saying, by the way, that there is such thing as a hundred percent right. Yes. There's no one. There's no one answer. You know. Right. Um, so one. Yeah. It is, it is, there is a subjectivity involved, and uh, you distance yourself as much as you make an effort to uh, debias yourself. But you're always going to have your set of experiences uh, that you're bringing to it, and you're going to bring your set of of exposure. I mean, things that you've seen before. If you if if you see something like if I see something, and I say, "Oh, this is familiar to me. I've seen this so many times." Mm-hmm. That may, that will be true to me, but it won't necessarily be true to a lot of people who see a lot less than I do. You know. Sure. So, so these are different little weird factors that I try in some. I mean, there's no there's no organized way to do it, but I do try to step back when I can and, and get some perspective. Do you ever find yourself thinking to yourself, you know, oh, I really maybe did not enjoy this show, but I know that the readers of Time Out would, so let me put it through that lens. Or is it, is it always, you know, your opinion without the outside factors of the publication coming in? Yes and no. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm not saying, I, I wouldn't say necessarily the readers of Time Out per se, although maybe to some extent, because I, I have an idealized vision of what the readers of Time Out means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may or may not be true to everyone who reads the magazine or the website. Um, but it is, I think, true, and this is why I feel very lucky to have ended up here. Uh, Time Out uh, is aimed at people, at a certain kind of person. It's aimed at someone who is looking to go out in the city and find interesting new 
cultural things to do. Uh, so it is an engaged audience and it's a curious audience. Mm. And I think uh, to some extent it is, although it's a general audience, it's a sort of a more informed subset of the general mm-hmm. audience. And so I write with that in mind. I like to assume that my readers are smart and that they are looking for interesting, cool stuff. And uh, and I want to pitch it on that level. But at the same time, yes, there are things that appeal to me more personally. And I try to, when it happens to be just something that tickles my what I know to be my personal fancy. I try to separate that out from just writing it, you know, from writing. Yeah. Yeah, No, that's Um, that's so interesting. And conversely, more more often, when it's something that just doesn't happen to really be my thing, I try to remain generous to it and understand that that that, just because I don't like, you know, raw cauliflower, (laughs) doesn't mean that that raw cauliflower is inedible. It just means it's my taste. Um, But we can all agree that raw cauliflower is inedible so i think we're okay it's always there. the last thing on the raw food yeah right it's it just like stays a, there just the way the carrots and the peppers and then it's just <laughs> half a plate of raw broccoli and cauliflower just chilling no. just chilling <laughs> so now this this past decade of theater has been so interesting you know in in the beginning of the decade you know are, are the two plays that win best player are you know coming in from from uh england and then all of a sudden we get this you know, wealth of American plays one after the other, like Clyburn Park, Vanya, Sonia. So I was, I'm curious, how do you feel the decade has transitioned itself from the beginning 2010 to where we are in 2019? Well, we certainly still have no shortage of British. That's true. Uh, There is an enormous pipeline. You know, there's, no, there's an enormous pipeline. Um, And uh, that can be great because we get a lot of, best British stuff, and it's kind of, uh, it's already been vetted for us. Yes. And uh, so I, I'm not complaining about that because we do end up getting to see a, a great deal of, of wonderful stuff. I do think sometimes there's a bit of a, an Anglophile fetishization of uh, English productions, and that can sometimes be frustrating um, when I think there are a lot of great American productions in off-Broadway houses that could very easily be imagined on Broadway and don't, for some reason, I think we're getting a little better at that. And by we, I mean the theater Mm -hmm. industry. I mean, to the extent that I'm included in that. But I mean, it's mostly producers and, and there are certain practical reasons for why this happens. Obviously, there are relationships that exist and also the existence of a whole successful production somewhere else makes it much easier to transfer to Broadway without worrying about uh, the risk as much. Absolutely. Um, you could just pick it up and, and put it down. Um, that said, there are specific situations in which I find it frustrating. I liked the revival of Angels in America very much a few years ago, but the idea of bringing a cast of British people to do a modern American play in America uh, is is strange to me. And I, I, I wonder whether anyone in England can imagine a cast of American actors coming and doing a, a contemporary British play in, with English accents in yeah. uh, West End. It, it, it's unimaginable. Yeah. And the fact that it is imaginable to us is weird. Uh, yes. it, it, it reflects to some extent how inured we've become to this, uh, to the influx of, of London theater. And that's not a complaint about that theater per se. I like a great deal of it. But uh, 
I wish there were most of my when I look back on the past decade, many of my favorite shows were off Broadway shows. Some of them are too weird and would never have transferred to Broadway, but many of them are not and would be would have been imaginable on Broadway. Uh, and uh, and I wish that more people had gotten to see some of them. And can you give us a couple of titles just off the top of your head that you feel go into that category? Uh, off the top of my head, huh. um, let's see. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, uh, like, uh, or off-Broadway productions in this past okay, decade no, you enjoyed. Off the top of my head, some of the plays that I've loved the most in the past few years, just in the past few years, uh, a play called An Octoroon mm. uh, that was off-Broadway twice, uh, a play called Fairview that was off-Broadway twice. You know, uh, these there is a market for these plays. Now, both of those plays present certain logistical problems you know, in a, in a, in a um, traditional proscenium Broadway theater, but they, it is possible to imagine working around them. Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 proposed similar theoretical problems, and I think they did a very good job of yes. making it work in the Broadway space. Uh, Hand to God was not a show that anyone thought would transfer to Broadway. Yeah. I thought it did great on Broadway. Avenue Q was not a show that people <laughs> thought would be on Broadway. I think that if people have the will, then... Um, then they can have the way, yeah. uh, and it would be nice. But you know, we are, but we are slave play is another show that I didn't think was going to transfer. Has transferred. I'm very glad it has. Uh, Oklahoma is another positive example of that. Um, so I think that we are starting to take some of these risks a bit more, and certainly there are producers like Scott Rudin who are taking very ambitious steps in that direction, who are bringing new plays by people like Taylor Mack to Broadway on principle uh, because he believes that that's what Broadway can do. And not all of those plays will be successes, but most plays are not successes on Broadway, True. so it's not unique to, to strange plays, Lord knows. Um, but I think that's been, a, that's been a good trend recently, and I think uh, we've had a bit more of that, and I would love to see more of that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, now, what trends or ideas did you see sort of dissolve in the past decade? Um, things that maybe were hung over from the, the, you know, the, the, two, the early 2000s now starting to dissipate? I don't know. You know, when people talk about trends, I, I usually bristle a little bit because um, often that kind of thing is is uh, an accident. Mm. Uh, yeah. By the time something develops as a trend, it's usually over. And the, the development times of these plays is longer than people imagine, especially musicals. So when, when things happen at their own time, they kind of happen accidentally, depending on, on, I mean, things that have been in development for a long time suddenly appear, and it looks like they're both doing the same thing, but actually they were developed independently of each other, and they don't have anything to do with each other. So uh, I'm a little wary about looking at, at themes that way. I do think that we're seeing, seeing long-term changes that uh, are continuing to happen that were true in the 2000s and, and have become true in the 2010s. I think we're moving away from the great American songbook style of musical theater writing in various ways. Uh, and that's true not just in, the, in that we have fewer revivals of classic shows, but also in the way that people write new shows. Um, we're moving away from the emphasis on sort of a jazz spine. We're 
moving away from the emphasis on perfect rhyme and people's ears are changing and that's just an evolution of how things happen um so even the shows that even shows by by people like Pascal and paul or uh or lin-manuel miranda people who do have a deep grounding in and love of american musical theater they don't always observe the same rules as old musicals used to and and that's fine if they do them well you know but yes. that is that's a, that's a change we're 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 certainly continuing to see the change in what kinds of plays get made on Broadway, uh, with with exceptions. Uh, they tend to be smaller plays now. Uh, they tend to be shorter plays, mm-hmm. plays with one sort of strange, dark, modular set and four people. You know. Yes. Um, yes. And those, for obvious reasons, those are easier to produce. Uh, so with fewer shows like you can't take it with you where you have 50 people on stage, you know, right. uh, and, uh, and, and more plays like art. Um, yeah. and, uh, and there are also for understandable reasons, there are fewer big personality stars, uh, who are marketable on their, on their personas, the way that you used to have, oh, uh, yeah. You know, actors today have to be more versatile. You can't be Carol Channing and make a career out of playing two people yeah. for That's 50 right. years. Um, and she did great. And, and God bless Carol Channing. She's amazing. But she was able to do that because you could do that. Um, and uh, and now you can't. Uh, you can't really, can't really do that. So you get people who have to be able to sing to these crazy places. Everything that's being written now is written for... And when Patti Lapone was singing that stuff in 1979, it, no one else was singing that way. Right. No one expected anyone to go up to a high D. <laughs> and uh, and now everyone expects that. Right. And 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 uh, it's it's a little bit like figure skating. You know, when you watch it, how they keep on pushing. You know, now women are supposed to land a quadruple axle or whatever. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, and uh, and no one did that 20 years ago. No one. So it's so the, those levels keep on rising. The levels of technical requirement keep on rising, and and meanwhile, that the the margin that that leaves for for a kind of quirky individual personality shrink a little. Mm. That's not anyone's fault. No, and now you know a lot of people have been coming to Broadway from Hollywood over the past ten years. There, there seems to be an influx of you know stars. Have there any, been any like quote unquote movie stars who surprised you with their their stage technique? Well, many of them. Uh, well, the other thing is, okay, so what we're talking about there is, again, a change in the way that Broadway plays happen. The the, the idea of a long-running Broadway play has kind of died. Yeah. Uh, and there are just very, very few of them. And so now mostly the model is to have a short run with a marketable star uh, and uh, – recoup your investment if you can and maybe make a little top and then close happy and everyone goes away having having done a nice thing and made a little money but the idea of running for for five years on a play uh, you know, there's no life with fathers anymore you know there's mm-hmm. no echo roads anymore um there isn't even a torch song trilogy or a gemini those kinds of plays don't happen uh and when they do they tend to be very big, spectacular musical type plays like War Horse or Curious Incidents. And even those don't have the kinds of runs that plays used. Yeah, to. yeah. Um, 
but but that said, so, so yes, stage, uh, sorry, so-called Hollywood stars can often give wonderful performances on stage. But what a lot of people forget is that these Hollywood stars, before they were Hollywood stars, often <laughs> came out of the theater and have <laughs> right, you know, right, it, you know, so. Big surprise, Kate Blanchett's wonderful on stage. Yeah, because she did a lot of stage work. Big surprise, Hugh Blanchett can, I mean, Hugh uh, Jackman can do musicals because Hugh Jackman started off doing musicals and became a star doing Oklahoma and before he was Wolverine, you know? Um, and so when they come back, uh, yes, often, often, but also people sometimes who don't have experience, uh, can, can surprise you in good ways. Uh, there's also something, you know, it's it's very theater is a weird thing, and so much of it depends on the charisma of a star, star the star performance, because in some ineffable way, it's it's about their ability to command attention on stage, and some stars have that naturally on stage, and uh, can can shape that fascination on stage, uh, and some stars implode. Some stars who are very good on screen don't know how to translate that into a live moment in a in a way that sustains over the course of a long scene, uh, and and they they don't know how to hold themselves. They don't know how to to carry their energy over into an audience. But experience isn't always the thing. An example that I I give a lot on this is Fantasia in The Color Purple, which I saw in the original production of Color Purple. When she came in, she had, as far as I know, no acting experience. She had just come off of, uh, of uh, American Idol. American Idol, yeah. Uh, and she was magnificent in Color Purple. I mean, not only did she sing the shit out of it, but she also had what seemed to be a deep connection to the role, a deep understanding of the role. And also the, the fact of her stardom made her interesting and gave her confidence. And the, everyone in the audience was responding so strongly yeah. to her presence there that it pulled the show together in a way that for me, it hadn't, it hadn't come together before when LaShawn's was doing it. LaShawn's very, very talented, but the show hadn't seemed as clearly to be about Seely yeah. with, with LaShawn's in it as it was with Fantasia because Fantasia's charisma made her the central character at all right. times. That's so interesting. But that's, that's really one of the things about getting to do what I do is uh, the opportunity to see the same production uh, over the course of time or with different actors and that can be really fascinating what people bring or don't bring. Um, and usually the production is at its very best when it opens or within the first few months of when it opens uh, for various reasons. But among other things, the production is tailored to the talents of its cast. And that's especially true of original shows. And it's especially true of musicals where there are a lot of changes being made up until the last you know, minute. And often that will be about whether something gets a laugh. Yeah. You know? And so the if the original performer... Is not getting that laugh, then it will be gone, and then it'll be gone forever. Yeah, you know. And then whoever comes in is ultimately doing a character that was molded around the skill set of the original person. And so, you're, if you can see the original person, it's uh, it's it's best to do that. That said, I've seen lots of times. I've seen I, I've been I, I've seen lots of uh, of replacements who have been for me uh, superior to the people who originally played them in that production. Uh, even sometimes when the original person is a terrific performer and sure. 
and often when they won a Tony for that performance. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. Tony Awards are another one of those things where it, it's really year to year. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> no. There's other factors. Absol- absolutely. Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now, of course, you know, none of these shows would be in theaters without without playwrights. So my question for you is, over this past decade, who were some of the top playwrights you saw emerge uh, in the 2010s? Uh, there were a lot of them. And here again, here's where... Um You'll notice that a lot of these ones for me are off-Broadway playwrights. Love it. Uh, but they are – when I look back on the on the 2010s, I think about people like uh, Annie Baker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about people like Samuel D. Hunter, mm-hmm. uh, who has a play now called The Greater Clements at Lincoln Center that I think is really beautiful. Uh, I think of Jackie Sibley's Drury, who um, wrote Fairview. I think of Taylor Mack. I think mm-hmm. of Stephen Karam. Yes. Uh, I think of Claire Barron, who wrote um, Dance Nation and uh, You Get Older. I think of Amy Herzog, who wrote Mary Jane a couple of years ago, which was just a gorgeous play. Uh, And uh, and most of these plays, I I mean, uh, Karam's The Humans did go to Broadway. Um, Taylor Mack had a a Broadway play last year. The other of the seven people I just mentioned, uh, five of them have, have not yet been on Broadway. Um, so that speaks to what we were talking about before a little bit, that a lot of the best theater, for me, the most uh, the most interesting stuff is still happening in these off-Broadway spaces. And the problem with that is that by the time you find out it's good, it can be very hard to get tickets. Right. And one beautiful trend of the 2010s that I that has been really encouraging is the rise of these kind of encore runs 
Yes. People bring back a production, an off-Broadway production, for a second run. And this happened with Octoroon. This happened with Fairview. It's, happen- it's happening right now with This Is A Room um, at the Vineyard. It's, uh, it's something that we're seeing more and more, and that is really encouraging because it again it, it can be really frustrating when you want when you get excited about a show and you want to share it with people and then you go online and you just realize ah too late yeah. people can line up and there's lotteries and things like that right. there's cancellation lists but most people don't have the right the time to and do these, that and these regional theaters or these off broadway theaters have subscribers and they you know their seats are filled before it's even right. you know yeah. released right. it's up. and so, so you know the, and these are small theaters these are 200 seat theaters and limited runs so um so yeah, I mean, one answer is read the reviews when they come out. Uh, read the ones that you trust and really act fast. Uh, and another one is is find playwrights that you that you think are consistently delivering work that's worth seeing. I have certainly ones that I am always going to be interested in seeing, and uh, and take the risk and buy their <laughs> buy their buy their tickets in advance because chances are even if it's not their best play it'll still be worth um it'll still be worth your time take right. the risk that's, that's such fabulous advice <laughs> uh, kevin a- any playwrights from your end that you really am- admired in the past decade well there's uh, I'm, I'm more on the broadway side and the, one of the commercial guys who who does not shy away from writing a long show but jez butterworth who gave us the ferryman and yes. gave us Jer- jerusalem was one of my favorite mm-hmm. plays many years ago with mark violence I've, I've, everything that mark violence is and I, I of course love but i think jez butterworth really is is shocked us i i'm excited for jeremy harris to write some more and see yes. what else we got i think what he's doing to broadway and polarizing is is a beautiful thing with a great piece of writing as well and i'm excited to see what he's going to have next um what about you rob i was going to uh, give a shout out to tara alvin mccraney um who uh-huh. whose work i just really really admire you know mm-hmm. Qu- choir boy and the brothers sisters plays and uh lucas nath who did um yes Do- yeah doll's house part two which i thought was just a mesmerizing evening in the theater yes yes and yes all i i agree with all of those what i said before is not to say that we haven't had a lot of plays that i've liked very much broadway um and uh, certainly both of those Jez Butterworth plays that you mentioned uh, are, are highlights for me, too. Uh, I thought that The Humans was great. I thought Hand to God was great. I thought uh, one of my very favorite plays of the past 10 years is Good People by David Lindsay Oh, Barrett. yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. That was just a, a terrific play, I thought. I thought the best play of this season. Um, but, you know... Uh, most and we've had a lot of really good revivals also uh, of plays normal heart mm. uh the revival of the normal heart i thought mm-hmm. was uh, really memorable um there was a i thought that the the jessica lang long day's journey and tonight was really uh mm. for me oh, uh, the so there will always be that and there will be performances oh my gosh so you mentioned mark rylance i mean it's been a, an amazing trip Oh, this decade, so many, he's done so many, from Labette all the way, I mean, he just kept giving us so much varied season. Right. Uh, It's uh, astonishing, Uh, and uh, and Twelfth Night he was marvelous in, and uh, when you have people like that, and you have, and then on the the female side, you have uh, Laurie Metcalf, who's become the the new Broadway pillar, and uh, who is just, uh, again, just a a delight every time she's out, even when the play is not quite deserving. Um, you get a lot 
of wonderful and the level of and Brian Cranston in All the Way and oh, my yeah. yeah, you love that, Rob. Yeah, yeah. really great performances. Um, speaking of Hand to God, Stephen Boyer, uh, the lead in Hand to God, was giving just one of those performances that I I will treasure. Uh, Viola Davis in Fences. Mm. Yep. Nina Arianda in Venus and Fur, if you remember that. Oh, oh yes. I loved her, yeah. Hugh Dancy, yeah. Francis McDormand in Good People is was as perfect for that part, I think. Uh, Christine Nielsen in Vanya and Sonia and Mash and Spike. Hysterical. <laughs> One of the funniest performances. Uh, there he is. Um, and last year, uh, I mean, Elaine May in, in Waverly Gallery and Glenda That's Jackson good. in the year before that. Um, so, well, I mean, last season and the season before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the... Uh, Glenda Jackson in Three Tall Women. That production generally is, uh, I thought, as good as a as a Broadway production can be. Right. Um, and remarkable design. Um, there have been a lot of a lot of directors. Joe Mantello directed that Three Tall Women, and he's also. If we talk about like the Mark Rylances and the and the uh, uh, Lauren Metcalfs, we also. I mean, <laughs> we also have directors who keep on delivering. Yes. And those are people like Joe Mantello who did The Humans and Blackbird and Three Tall Women. Yep. Uh, and people like Bart Scherer who did, you know, not just musicals, but also shows like Oslo and Golden Boy and Tacoma oh, Blackbird. Yeah. And uh, Marion Elliott. Oh, my God. The Angels in America and also Curious Instant and also War Horse. You know, th- these are... Uh, and Company This Season, yeah. Yeah. This season, fingers crossed. And Joe Mantello also back as an actor in The Normal Heart, which was great to see. Oh, was he was so brilliant in that. My God. Um, I saw him in Angels in America in the 90s when I was a wee, a wee one. Uh, and uh, he weer when I was a weer one. And uh, that was, uh, I remember his Lewis in Angels in America very well. That was a, really a, a seminal performance for me. He's such so, a special artist. Such a special artist. Actually, really quickly, I want to ask you, Adam, do you remember the first Broadway show you ever saw? I, I, I don't remember which was which. I remember the first two that I saw because I remember the trip that it was. And uh, I don't remember whether we saw the play first or the musical first, but I saw I saw Torch Song I saw Torch Song trilogy. I saw Brighton Beach Memoirs. No. And I saw Sunday in the Park with George. Oh my god. Well that's that's kind of a genius trip, isn't it? Those are good ones. Those are good ones. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was uh, Sunday in the Park with George. I saw the the original leads were already out of it. I saw uh, Robert Westenberg and Marianne Plunkett oh. as, as um, and and Dot, and it was um, uh, I, I I loved it. I remember loving the first act and being a little confused by the second act. That's <laughs> I, I'm honest. Still, yeah. I think <laughs> that's the um, consistent. That's the thing, you know. If you if you like Sondheim shows, and I do. <laughs> then uh, the nice thing about that is that slowly starts to change, and and start really digging the beak cuts you know i love it i love it i love it hey kev anything for you any any broadway productions or directors or performers that you thought were really exemplary this year uh this decade i should say last decade yeah Yeah. i mean the name a name a name a director that keeps coming up is anna shapiro i feel like she's just been everywhere and then also trip coleman i think we're going to see a lot more of his work um i know that you know significant other rob is one of you you know we've talked about that i love that play um but and we i mean i can't get through this podcast without bringing up eva van hova because this is the decade that brought us a view from the bridge where they're barefoot on stage and everyone was like what the hell is going on? And then he just keeps on <laughs> giving us more fascinating 
head scratching um, moments in the theater. But as far as productions that I was completely devastated and wiped away with was uh, just a couple years ago, Indecent. Uh, it also gave us Katrina Lank, which was like a revolution. Um, but I, I was <laughs> so completely moved by Indecent uh, and that it just really, to this day, still stays with me and the, the, some of the visions and, and, and the themes that I saw in that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Beautiful, beautiful production. The whole yeah. uh, Adina Versen, who is in that, also is. Uh, yes, she's uh, she's been popping up a lot in in little off Broadway plays. I don't want to, when I say little, I don't mean that dismissively. I mean it's smaller productions, um, and uh, she's uh, really gifted. Uh, and uh, it's been yeah, indecent was magical. But there's another example of a show that began off Broadway, and I think yep. was was very beautiful, transferred very beautifully to Broadway. Um, and uh, so there, there's so much, there always is so much. This is the, the, the challenge of keeping up in this city. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, and there are, and there are, and there are trends, how should I say, there are less salutary trends, as well, you know. I'll take that. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, you know, but, but I, I often feel, even when, Okay, so someone like Ivo Van Hove, I, I'm a little bit on the fence about what he's been doing more recently. Maybe it's just a, that I'm a little Evoed out, having seen so much of his work over the years, and I saw a lot of it off-Broadway, and I, I'm really thrilled that it has moved to this new sphere. I think that it pushes the, the Overton window, you know, it pushes the envelope of what can be done on Broadway. And I, and I think to some extent, Things like the Daniel Fish Oklahoma, which I love, that's on Broadway right now, uh, reflects a little bit the the after effects of those two Evo revivals mm. that we mm. had a few years ago. It just meant that people could could look at something that was unconventionally directed, unconventional for Broadway, very conventional if you go to Batman. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but was you know but is is unconventional for Broadway and. Uh, and that that it could be successful, that it could move people. I think we're going to be seeing a bit more of that, that quote unquote unconventional uh, director driven. Yes, which is theater. exciting. I think. Yeah, yeah, it can really open up a text if it works right. I thought that for me, the Evo view from a bridge worked a lot more effectively yes. than the Evo Crucible, uh, and yes. uh, the Evo Crucible just felt a little confused to me and and thus confusing i mean i don't yes. know if, i mean it 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 created the possibility that you could come away from the crucible thinking that the crucible was that the attitude toward it was like well maybe they were witches yeah right <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i don't i don't know if that's really what arthur miller was going for right uh but uh you know uh but certainly they were very effectively staged in some ways. They were very uh, striking, and they were very memorable. Some of their key imagery, and I'm very curious to see what he's going to do with West Side Story. I'm sure people will be up in arms. Already uh, are, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, that's exciting. You, can't just, you can't just do the same thing over and over again. And I love the same thing. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I'm very happy to have a traditional revival. Some of my most pleasurable evenings at the theater. <laughs> Uh, you know that that Mark Rylance Twelfth Night, which was as traditional as it gets, uh, was glorious for me. The Patty Lapone Gypsy was a, a more or less standard revival, and for yes. me, connected in all the right ways. So yes. I don't, I'm opposed to this, but give things some air. Let Good. them breathe. Through. 
new generation. I love. There was it. an old Saturday Night Live sketch. It's a digression, but there was an old Saturday Night Live sketch years ago with Phil Hartman and Wait, Jan Adam. Hudson. This is my favorite sketch of SNL of all time. I talk about on the podcast, but go ahead. Really? I just Have you talked about it. Before? I do. Ad nauseum, but but please do it because no, it makes me so happy. Done and. and uh, and Phil Hartman and, and, and Phil is playing an actor in some in a regional production of The King and I and they keep asking him about Yul Brynner and, and, and that why you know how does it compare to Yul Brynner and how do you step into Yul Brynner's footsteps and why aren't you bald and you know all these and, and finally the, he breaks down into tears and, and his wife starts berating the host uh, and, and she says basically no my husband is a good man my husband is a good actor he's trying his best <laughs> and she says if you want yell Brenner dig him up <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's something to that you know like you can say all you you know you want yell Brenner dig him up. we're not gonna see yell Brenner again now don't so, judge me Adam I actually have that quote and I have it on a t-shirt I'm not judging you. I print great. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me so. But it's true. We need. We need. You have. You need air. You need to reinvent. You need to allow people to explore these shows under a different lens. Otherwise, what's the point of why we're doing it? Right, and it has to speak to a new audience. And things that were funny to us fifty years ago are not necessarily funny to us yep, now. That's right. And things that were. And a lot of that, I was talking about this recently on another uh, show, so I don't want to go into it, you know, I don't want to bore your audience if they are listening to multiple versions of me talking on podcasts. But but it's true, sometimes, you know, just a, a show connects with a different generation in a new way because it has things embedded in it. If it's a good enough show, it'll have a lot of things going on. And sometimes yes. different colors will come out in different lighting, you know? The, no, that's so true. And Absolutely. Then, and then finally, to, to wrap up, what do you think were some of the biggest theatrical news stories of the decade? Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> charging your well, phone at hand of God? <laughs> you charging your phone. <laughs> well, look, I mean, Hamilton is the big is the big Broadway story of the 2000s. It's the big yeah. musical theater story of the past 50 years. There's no, well, of the, at least in the past 50 years. Uh, there's been nothing like it. There's been nothing like it in terms of the pop crossover. Yeah. Uh, this was a, this was a mass culture success in a, in a musical theater piece that has not been known really since the sixties. Probably. Uh, not even things like a chorus line or cats. Uh, those were not. Those were not the most downloaded. You know. The, yeah. Yes. Yes. This, this was this was a, a crossover hit with with the real general public, and that never happens anymore. No. So that that is very exciting, and also what that represents. The the one of the larger trends that we that we've been seeing a lot more of recently, and I think this is nice too, is this trend of uh, racially inclusive casting and of uh, of racially blind casting, ethnicity blind casting, uh, gender blind casting. Uh, this more idea of uh, of making space for different communities, and and conversely. Uh, Bizarrely, because the world is complicated. Conversely, uh, sometimes a more specific and limited idea of who and who and only who can be cast in certain roles. So uh, we've become very, very sensitive to issues of cultural representation. So uh, issues, you know, issues related to anything perceived as a relative of blackface, uh, the, and, and, and that is expanding daily. 
yeah. in terms of who can play. You know, can non-gay people can play gay characters? Can non-disabled people can play disabled characters? Uh, so, so at the, the so there's a bit of a contraction on that part of the casting side, and on the, the other part of the casting side, there's, a, there's an enormous expansion. Um, so in in a in a production like Oklahoma, you have. Uh, a woman who uses you a wheelchair. You have two actors, three actors of, of color in the cast, and the, and are being used in very specific ways uh, that bring out what the show is doing. So they, in, and in cases like that, they are using race in very particular ways. And then you have other cases where uh, it's just being used invisibly, and uh, in the sort of Audra McDonald and, and Carousel model, mm. where. It's just uh, part of the suspension of disbelief. So the, that the, I think that the landscape for all of that has been changing very rapidly in interesting ways. Um, we've certainly seen an exhausting influx for me of uh, musicals, especially that are based on uh, films, uh, based on successful brand name films, and jukebox musicals that are and bio musicals that are based on successful bodies of work. I think that. We have seen so many of those that I would be very surprised if we did not see a counter reaction and a, an exhaustion factor from okay. the Japanese audience for that. Um, because ultimately, if you look at the real big successes, the ones that are really defining the past 10 years on Broadway, you're looking at original shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're looking at the Book of Mormon. You're looking at Hamilton. You're looking at Dear Evan Hansen. You know, and come from away. And come from away. You know, you're these are um, those are the ones that really connect with people, and there's that's because they come from distinct creative voices, uh, and they are telling new stories that are developed to speak to modern audiences, Mm -hmm. and not just to tap into audiences' nostalgia for what they felt 20 or 30, 50 years ago, and so. That's uh, that's something that I think everyone is bearing in mind. I think that's very exciting because I'm excited to see then what the next decade holds. Adam, I cannot yeah. tell you how much we appreciate you taking time out to talk to us today. You you are one of our most beloved critics. We love reading your work, and we thank you so much for all that you've given us over the past thank few years. Thank you so years. much. It's a, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank all right, everybody. Till next time. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. (laughs) I saw it. So (laughs) head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.